Blasting through most of the next month, we're going to look at Jesus' great prayer for his people uh, to his Father. I'll start at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the uh, evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. This is God's word. Now, uh, you know, hearing is one thing, but overhearing is rather special. When you overhear, you feel that you've got, you got the real stuff. This chapter, I think, is unique, not only in the Bible, but anywhere, in any kind of literature. In this chapter, you get to overhear God. It's, God's not talking to us. We're not talking to him. It's the Father and the Son inside the Godhead having an extended conversation. I mean, here you have the real stuff. And we also have to remember that this is the night before Jesus dies. I, I don't know if you have, but I certainly have sat with people just before they died. And I can tell you that when you, just before you die, you're stripped bare of anything except that which your heart really is made of. Those things which are truly on your heart and truly in your heart come out. You really see what a person is made of before they're dying. And so here we know that we're going to hear the son, before he dies, talking to the father 
about the most important things to him. You know what they are? Us. The most important thing to him is us. All he does is talk about us. And he prays for four things, which we're going to look at over the next few weeks. He prays for truth for us. Sanctify them in the truth. He prays for unity and love. Let them be one as we are one. He prays for mission. I send them into the world even as I was sent. And he prays for holiness. Sanctify them. Now, the reason we're going to start today and next week with the holiness is for this reason. Most people today can understand the other three. Most of you understand. Most, the modern person understands the need for truth. We're skeptical about the possibility of truth, but we realize how important it is to have something to really live by and die for. We're also, I think, most of us aware of the importance of mission. A lot of the best analysts today trying to figure out what's wrong with America, I think they've put their finger on it when they say, America doesn't know what its mission is now. What are we for? Individuals need to feel like we count. The worst thing is like in that song in Les Mis, the musical, right before those college students are about to die on the barricades to give their life for for a better, more just society, and they sing a song that goes, is your life just one more life. Oh, just imagine a statistic. Your life is just one more life. You've never done anything to count. You've never done anything to make a difference. You've never really had a mission. See, we all need mission. We all need truth. We all need love and unity. But one thing we have a little trouble understanding is why we need to be holy. It doesn't matter who you are. If, for example, you don't know that you're a Christian, or you don't know, or maybe you know you're, a Christ, you're not a Christian, maybe you realize you're on the outside, and uh, you're just here for whatever reason, or maybe you don't know whether you are a Christian or not, or maybe you know you're a Christian, it doesn't matter, here is something that Jesus Christ was willing to die for. We sing about it in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. He died to make men holy. You know that line? It says, sanctify them, Lord. I sanctify them, he says to his father. I have sanctified myself that they might be sanctified. See verse 19? He is talking about his death. He says, I am willing to die that they might be holy. There is no way that anybody in this room can come away from here thinking that they have any idea of what Christianity really is until you figure out what is so important about being holy that the Son of God would die for it. What does it mean to be holy? Why is it so important? Why does he ask for it for us? He's stretching for it. He's praying for it. He's sweating blood for it. He's willing to be tortured for it. Have you got any idea why it's so important? Let's just look at that today. What does it mean to be holy? Now, I told you we're going to spend two weeks on it, and today I'd like to actually, first of all, say the only way we'll understand Our own holiness and what that means is if first we look and ask, what does it mean to say that God is holy? Have you ever heard Christians pray spontaneously? I don't mean with a prayer in front of them, but just spontaneously. How do they address God? Oh, thousands of ways. But I want you to know, I've heard a lot of people pray in my uh, career, and I've never heard anybody yet 
pray the way Jesus prays. When Jesus approaches the Father, when we overhear him talking the most intimately, how does he approach God? In verse 11, we see it. He says, Holy Father. I've never heard anybody else spontaneously do that. Holy Father. Jesus, when he thinks of his Father, he thinks of the holiness of his Father. Now, what does the word holy mean? The word holy means to be separate, not what you may think. I know a lot of you are thinking of purity and all that kind of stuff. Get it out of your mind for a moment. The basic meaning of the word holy, the Hebrew word meaning, the basic meaning of the word holy in the scripture is to be separate. To be separated for something, to be set apart for something, to give your something. You see, when we talk about the holiness of God, the Bible means he is separate from us. So 1 Samuel 2.20 said, that says, There is no one holy like the Lord, there is none besides thee. Or in Isaiah 45, this is maybe the best place, Isaiah 45, Jesus, uh, God is saying to his people, I am the Holy One. To whom will you liken me? To whom will you compare me? To see God as holy means to see that he is utterly exalted, infinitely transcendent, completely above us, infinitely above us. A lot of you, when you took Religion 101, had to read a book by yet another German scholar named Rudolf Otto, who in the early part of the 20th century wrote uh, a, a uh, work on the idea called The Idea of the Holy. And he studied all the different religions to find out what they all seem to have in common when people approach that which they thought was holy. And in that study, Rudolf Otto decided that the main thing they all had in common was when they approached the holy, they felt radically unholy. The way he put it is, they were overwhelmed with a sense of their creatureliness. You know what that means? You know you haven't been in the presence of the absolute until you realize profoundly that you're not absolute. You haven't been in the presence of the infinite until you feel radically finite. You haven't been in in the presence of the eternal unless you feel radically temporary. And that's the reason why you see again and again in the scripture, whenever somebody gets near the holy God, they immediately become more aware of themselves. To know the holiness of God is to immediately know that you are small and flawed and weak. Immediately. That's the reason why when, when uh, you see, when Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, approaches the clean God, the, the perfectly, ex- transcendently clean God, he feels unclean. When, when Job, at the end of the book of Job, when he approaches the holy, the transcendently wise God, he feels like a fool. You, you see, you feel crowded. There was one, true story, there was, a, there was a golf pro once who had a play in a foursome with Billy Graham. And when he was done... Uh, a friend of his saw him come off of, the, uh, come off of the course looking very upset. And he went over and said, what happened out there? And, he said, and, the, and the, the golf pro looked at his friend and said, I don't need to have Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And he walked away with all the veins popping in his neck and went over to a practice, 
uh, place where he was hitting golf balls with tremendous fury, and his friend came up trying to gently figure out what happened and said, gosh, was Billy Graham kind of rough on you out there? And the golf pro turned to him and, with a very embarrassed sigh, said, no, no, he didn't actually say anything about religion. And uh, at all, and, and, the, and the friend said, well, what happened? And he said, I don't know, I, I, I just had a bad round. You see, look, Billy Graham is so associated with religious things that this golf pro felt crowded by the holiness of God. You see, sometimes it doesn't even take God, but just a relatively godly person to make you begin to feel weak, flawed, small, unholy. Now, let me put it in the most uh, concise way possible and the most practical way possible. It wasn't that long ago that a woman told me that she was telling me about her conversion. And she expressed her conversion this way. She says, well, you know, the bottom line of it was I've been religious all my life, but one day I realized there was only one God and it wasn't me. Now, that's cute, but would you look inside what she said? She said, when I realized, she'd been religious all of her life, when I realized there was one God and it wasn't me and that radically changed everything, she had had an experience of the holiness of God. Who is like unto thee, O Lord among God, who is like unto thee? That's Exodus 15. What's the next line? We sing it here, glorious in holiness. When you experience the holiness of God, you begin to realize for the first time his uniqueness, his transcendence, and you begin to realize there's only one God, there is none like thee, holy, and it's not me. Let me give you three very practical case illustrations of how the holiness of God, realizing, experiencing God, not just as a nice person, not just as a moral person, not just as a forgiving person, but as a holy person, so his forgiveness is a holy forgiveness, and his wisdom is a holy wisdom, and his mercy is a holy mercy, what kind of impact that has on your life. Case number one, why do you worry? Why do you worry? Think about it for a minute. You worry because you say, I know there's something that's got to happen. If it doesn't happen, well, let's, let's get underneath. What are you really saying? What you're really saying is the one who's in charge of history might not get things right. What you mean is, now I've told you this one before. When Martin Luther would talk to his friend Philip Melanchthon, and Philip was a worrier. What would Martin Luther say to Philip to try to get him jolted, sort of a shock treatment, a theological uh, you know, shock treatment out of his worry? What would he say? He would say, let Philip cease to rule the world. So what was he saying? He was saying, Philip, do you know the reason why you're worried? There's one God, and it's not you. And until you realize that, you're going to be worried. His wisdom is a transcendent wisdom. It's a holy wisdom. It's infinitely above you. When you start to say to him, who is like unto thee? You know much more about this than me, Lord. You love me more than I love myself. You, you, you're far wiser than me. What's the matter with me? What happens is in the presence of the holiness of God, seeing his wisdom is holy wisdom, you find peace. Hmm? 
who is like unto thee. Or here, let me give you a second case. It's one thing to say God's wise, but to see that he's holy in his wisdom, that gives you peace. And here's another case. A lot of you know about God's law, the Ten Commandments. And most of us know the things that are in there. Don't ever lie. Don't sleep around. Don't take things that aren't yours. Okay? And so forth. We were raised believing that those were very important. And we still think they're very important. But as we grew up as adults, we found, lo and behold, there are exceptions. There's lots and lots of situations in which, well, it really would be impractical and not absolutely necessary. And, and so we began to break them. And as we did, we found our conscience started to bother us. We found ourselves digging ourselves into holes. We found ourselves having to lie and getting deeper and deeper to lie to cover up that last lie and to do this to cover up that lie. And next thing you know, we're in it. We're up to our neck. Why? I'll tell you why. Because you forgot that God's law is a holy law. You decided that you could be more fair, more wise, and more just than God's law. You have forgotten that his justice is infinitely above your justice. Do you see that? His law is infinitely above the law that you decided you were smart enough to to, uh, build. You know the reason why we're in the problem we're in? Because we forgot that there's one God and it's not us. Who is like unto thee? A Lord among gods. But let me give you the third case. You forget he's holy in his wisdom? You'll be crushed with anxiety. You forget that he's holy in his law and his justice? You'll find your life broken. But the most important one, because it's here in front of us, what happens if you forget that he's holy in his fatherhood? You see, Jesus goes to him and says, Holy Father. Let me put it to you this way. If you forget that he's holy in his fatherhood, in the Middle Ages you had serfs who lived on the the, uh, the land of the feudal barons, on the, 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 uh, the land of their feudal lords. And if the baron came and started to scold the serf, the serf would tremble. Why? You trembled because you might be ejected, you might be expelled from your land. But when a father sits down and begins to chastise a good father, a holy father, to chastise the son or daughter, does the son or daughter tremble? Yes. But now imagine, and I'll show you in a minute why it's hard, but imagine, with a really good father, why does the son or daughter tremble? Not because he or she believes that they are going to be expelled. Oh, no. But there's a trembling. Because you see, a son or a daughter of a great parent, of a marvelous and wonderful parent, realizes that the parental love is not something that they ever earned. They were born into it. It wasn't something that they deserved, and it wasn't something they could lose. So why are they trembling? They're trembling not out of fear of losing the love. They're trembling out of fear of presuming on the love. They're trembling out of fear of wounding the love, of grieving the love. And that fear is an intolerable burden, and it drives you to lead a holy life. A great father, a marvelous father, is someone you tremble because a great and holy father 
will only come and talk to you about your sins when it's absolutely necessary. Take a look at, well, for a minute. In verse 6, Jesus is talking about his own. Look at how a really good family operates. In verse 6, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. Out of the world, they were, you, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. They have obeyed your word. Behold how a real family operates. Why in the world? Is, this just leaped out at me after I was reading over this and over this. Suddenly it just struck me. How could Jesus say this about the disciples? You know who these people are. You've been reading about them. All they ever do is quarrel. All they ever do is, is doubt. All they ever do is, is scramble for preeminence. They're about to desert him and deny him and within a matter of hours. Why in the world would Jesus say, they obey your word? This shows how a real family operates. In a real family, you come and you take what you can and affirm it. Here is, here is God without a word of criticism. Here is God without... Here, here is, you see, here's Jesus talking to the Father and, and, and agreeing that these people have sought him and obeyed them. They've co- they're covering up. Now, you see, we know it, we, it, it, this isn't the same thing as, as, uh, uh, as sweeping under the rug. But in a sense, they're affirming the best. And they are, for now, not playing up and emphasizing the worst. How can they do that? How can they do that? That's the way a good family operates. Were you ever in this kind of family? When you did something well, that was okay. But when you did something bad, you were clobbered for it. Here's a good family. When you do something good, it's lifted up and endorsed. It's celebrated. When you do something bad, it's dealt with, it's forgiven, it's covered, and it's put aside. That's the kind of father we have. That's the kind of family that a Christian is born into. This is a holy family. Now, somebody says, I don't understand that kind of thing because I didn't have a family like that. Well, listen, to have a bad family, come from a bad family background is serious. I'm not minimizing it, but let me point this out to you. Not only didn't you have a father like this, but my own children don't have a father like that. If you take a look at the father love that you need, just draw a picture of the kind of parental love that you really need. Draw a picture of it, the unconditionality of it, the the warmth of it, the power of it, the freeness of it, uh, and yet the the truthfulness of it. Just draw a picture of the kind of love you really need, and you'll see you're drawing a picture of holy family love, holy father love. No one's ever seen it. This is the only place to get it. Why don't you and I have it? If we look to our parents for it, or even if, as some of the books say, we look to ourselves for it, to parent ourselves, what makes you think, really, that you'll be the perfect parent for yourself? No, no, no. What it says here is, you have to come to realize that the fatherhood of God is a holy fatherhood. Let me give you three evidences of people who have finally grasped that their father is a holy father. What if you really, really believed? What if you lived upon? What if you you grasped? What if you worshipped him as holy father? What if you finally treated him as if he was perfect? 
Warriors do not treat him as perfectly and holy in his wisdom. Right? The disobedient do not treat him as perfect and holy in his justice and law. And I want you to know that the critical, the defensive, and the, and the complainers and the self-pityers do not treat him as holy in his fatherhood. Let me give you three examples, or three, three evidences of a person who really is beginning to grasp that my father is a holy father. My father in heaven is a holy father. Number one, people who really know that they're children of a perfect father, of a holy father, do not live lives of critical irritability. Here's, look at verse 6. They obey your word. Look at Jesus. You know, you've heard me say this. Look at Jesus after, at, in the Garden of Gethsemane, coming back and saying to the disciples who for the third time had fallen asleep when he asked them not to, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. I know you meant well. You know, those of us with critical, irritable spirits better get down in the dust before the holy love of the Father. Psalm, 30, Psalm 130 says, if, anyone were to, if you were to mark iniquities, who should stand, O Lord, but there is forgiveness of sins with thee, therefore thou art feared. You can't stay critical. You can't find yourself looking at other people and always being irritable and grouchy and grumpy and unhappy with them and finding all sorts of faults with them all the time. You can't be a critically spirited person if you're constantly remembering and being melted by the fact that God covers your offenses and affirms your strengths. Because he's a perfect father, he's a holy father. You just can't have that irritable spirit. Okay, here's the second mark of somebody who really has grabbed the holiness of the father. You can't be defensive. You know what I mean by defensive? Look, if somebody comes to you and says, you owe me $500, how will you respond? Well, it depends, doesn't it? If you realize you're in debt to about 20 people to, for thousands of dollars and someone comes to you asking for 500, you're going to make excuses. You're going to say, it's unreasonable to ask me to do this so quickly. You're going to say, it's not 500, I think it's only 400. Or you're going to say, oh, look, well, yeah, but, but think of all the things I've done for you. But if, on the other hand, yesterday you won the lottery, and you're rich beyond the, the wildest dreams of your imagination, and someone comes and says, don't you owe me $500? What do you say? I think it's 600 here. I'm so glad that you asked me this. I'm really glad. Here. I'm so glad to get this off of my, uh, my conscience. I'm really delighted that you came and asked me. I was going to get to you. When someone comes and criticizes you, finds fault with you, how do you respond? You see... If you respond sweetly, if, you, if you're very quick to find something to repent for, if, you, if the person, what the person's saying is half right and half wrong, or even two-thirds wrong and one-third right, you go for the part that's right, and you admit it. If you repent sweetly, without excuses, without counterattacks, without, without, without blame-shifting, that shows that you're emotionally rich in the love of the Father. But if, on the other hand, you get your back up, if you make excuses, if you say, but look at all the things that I've done for you, if you say how unreasonable you're being, that proves what? That you may intellectually believe that you've got a Father in Heaven that loves you, but you don't know it's a holy love. You're likening Him to somebody else then. 
and you're not treating him as holy. Let me give you a third mark. People who really know their father is a holy father are not critical and irritable. Secondly, they are not defensive. Thirdly, they're not full of self-pity, complaining that their life is going wrong. You know, you see, for example, when, when Pilate was about to sentence Jesus to, uh, you know, to a terrible death, what does Jesus do? He looks at him and he says, you've ruined my life. No. <laughs> he says, you have no power except that which has been given to you by my father. Where do you think the poise comes from? Where do you think the confidence comes from? He looks out there and says, I'm hurting, but I also know the person who's in charge of this show is my father. The author of this play is my father. I may be hurting, but in the end, I know that he knows what he's doing. He loves for me. He loves me. He cares for me. He's running the show. A person who believes that God is his father or her father, holy father, perfect father, infinitely exalted above any other father or mother, and above your own fathering or mothering that you, you have done or, or are capable of doing, until you see that you can liken him to no one, that he's perfect and holy, you are going to be a critical person, you are going to be a defensive person, you're going to be a person full of self-pity. Now look, let's conclude, because later on we're going to talk about what it really means to live a holy life, but can't you see this? You know how you live a holy life. I know, you know why the serfs obey the Lord? Because they're scared that they're going to be thrown off. And so what they do is they only obey the laws to the extent that they have to. They only pay all the taxes they have to. And behind the, the back of the feudal Lord, they resent him. But if you know you've got a father who's perfect, why do you obey him? You obey him because you don't want to presume or wound or grieve his perfect and holy father love. And as you, as you grasp it, as you live off of it, and as you worship it, as you come to the Lord's table, you have to realize that you're a child at the table and the Father is the one who's serving you. Grasp that and say, Lord, the reason that I'm critical, the reason I'm defensive, the reason I'm worried, the reason I'm disobedient, the reason I don't have self-control, the reason I'm afraid of what's happening in the life, the reason I'm full of self-pity is because I have not. I've been likening you to other people. I've been comparing you to others. I'm not seeing that you're perfect. Last thing to say. There may be some people here who say, this is very interesting. But uh, I, I don't think of God like this. I tend to think of God like this. I see all these interesting things that you're saying, but, but uh, I, I don't see God this way. Verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus is praying for all these wonderful things for his own. He prays for the disciples, truth, holiness, beauty, all this great stuff I'm talking about. And he says, and also for them who believe through their word. Now, he's not saying, Father, give all these great things that we're talking about to anybody who believes in me any old way, but to those who believe in me through the apostles' teaching. I've had many people say, well, look, Tim, this is very interesting, but I feel like everybody has the right to believe in God and worship God the way he or she pleases and chooses. That's not true. We have laws against that in this country for human beings. We just don't have laws against it for, for, for God. People can't believe what they want to believe about you and speak about you in any way they want to speak. We have laws of libel and slander. 
In other words, just, you can't say, well, I like to think of you, Tim, as a wife beater. <laughs> I have a right to, to say that that's the way I'm going to believe in you and treat you and tell other people about you. And I say, yes, well, I'll see you in court. See? <laughs> and yet we will do to God what we would never let anyone do to us. Jesus says, it's not anybody who believes in me any old way that will get these wonderful gifts. It's those who believe in me through the apostles' teaching, who believe in me through their word. That means you come to the word of God, you come to the, the, the teaching of the church, that's been, the apostolic teaching's been, been, uh, been sent down, and you see what the gospel really is. That God, the Father who loves us, but who's a holy Father, has said, serve me, and we haven't, we've rebelled. Jesus Christ's son has come and died to pay the penalty for that. And now he lives at the right hand of the Father. And for those who come to God through him and only through him, can we know God not as a consuming, burning fire, but as a holy Father. That's what the apostles taught. If you say, I don't like that idea, then the promises are not for you. None of the things that we've talked about are, not for, are, are for you. Today you have to realize that the ones who get this are those who have received him, John chapter 1, verse 12, who have believed on his name, who have received Jesus, who have believed on his name, to them he gave the rights to be children of God. Do you want these great things that we're talking about? The poise, the confidence, the power, the lack of a critical spirit, the ease, the peace? He's praying for it for you. If you belong to him, if you come to him and receive him as he is offered in the apostolic teaching. Come and get it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that, you're, that you are a holy Father. And now I ask that everybody here will find you that way now. For those who are already have received you and are already your children, they, uh, I pray that right now as they partake of the bread and the cup, they will see that their problems come because they are not practicing your holiness. They're not worshiping you as holy. They're not treating you as a holy Father. Father, if there's anyone here who, has, who really relates to you not as a son or a daughter, but as a serf, if there's anyone here who has never received you as their father by receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior, I ask that they would take him, they would take you in their hands now and give themselves to you. And now we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.